This episode contains a description of sexual abuse as well as a mention of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. In the 1980s, Jay Lemberger was an altar boy at All Saints Catholic Church in Dallas, Texas. He and other boys would attend altar server classes with Father Rudy Koss. And sometimes they would spend the night. Jay's parents knew Father Koss as their son's best friend. He taught him things, like how to use a computer. And he talked to him about being a priest. And he seemed to always be there for Jay. Jay was hospitalized for depression when he was 14, after admitting he had thought about suicide. Father Koss came to visit him. His parents, Nancy and Pat, bought him some new tennis shoes to wear at the hospital. He tore them to shreds. I couldn't understand why, Nancy told a reporter from Texas Monthly. Jay Lemberger died by suicide at age 21. Jay's parents asked Father Koss to preside at the funeral. Six months after Jay's death, Nancy finally discovered the likely cause of her son's desperation and the reason he hated tennis shoes. Four victim survivors and their families came forward with accusations against Father Cost. They said that when they visited the rectory, they were asked to remove their tennis shoes. Later, Father Cost would use their feet for sexual gratification. He had a foot fetish. In the court proceedings, we learned that Father Koss abused at least 11 boys. Four of the victims estimated that over five years, they were abused a total of 1,350 times. What we don't know is what happened to Jay in the rectory with Father Koss, or how many times it happened. There is so much of the sexual abuse crisis that we simply don't know. And if we're honest, we'd rather not know. Maybe that's part of the problem. The details shared by victim survivors of what went on in rectories, sacristies, and confessionals horrify us. And we close our eyes, hoping it'll all get fixed and go away. But it doesn't. In 1997, a jury required the Diocese of Dallas to pay 11 victims of Rudy Koss millions of dollars. The jury concluded that the diocese knew the abuse was taking place did nothing to stop it, and actively covered it up. A year later, Koss was found guilty in a criminal trial and sentenced to life in prison. He's still there. You're listening to Crisis, a podcast of The Catholic Project. I'm Carna Lozoya. In our last episode, we told a brief history of clergy abuse in the United States. In this episode, we'll explore some of the more prominent theories about what caused the crisis. We'll examine the external context, the internal structures, and the theology of the church that seemed to create a climate that allowed priests like Father Rudy Koss to abuse multiple victims for years, with seemingly little interest on the part of the church to prevent or stop it. In 2002, the Spotlight investigative team of the Boston Globe uncovered a pattern of clergy sex abuse and cover-up in the Archdiocese of Boston, sparking a nationwide crisis in the Catholic Church. What followed was intense, widespread scrutiny of the Church's handling of abuse cases, and questions were asked that the bishops simply couldn't answer. 
people wanted to know how many priests were abusers and what was it about the Catholic Church that allowed this type of abuse to occur. To answer those questions and more, the U.S. bishops brought in a team of experts. They approached John Jay College researchers in criminology and psychology to undertake an overall study of the nature and scope of the problem of sexual abuse in a 50-year period from 1950 to 2000. Margaret Smith, a quantitative criminologist at the Institute for Criminal Justice Ethics at John Jay College. She's been working on John Jay's studies into clergy sex abuse since they began in 2002. So this was a landmark study, the first institution, and to date the only institution, to open its records fully for examination. This study began in 2002, and the study was published in 2004. John Jay followed up the 155-page report with a second study, published in 2011. This one covered the causes and context, and the church again gave the researchers unprecedented access to its archives. And we spent five years gathering information on many of the dimensions that we had not had time to study before. So we gathered information from individual priests who had been abusers. We gathered information from bishops and those in supervisory positions. And we studied the archival data that was available to us about studies that had been done at the peak of the abuse in the 1970s. The first time I spoke with Smith via Zoom, she took me back in time. She told me that any study of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church must be retrospective in nature. Granted, cases of sexual abuse continue to occur, and they continue to be reported, and transparency and accountability continue to be issues. All that said, the number of cases taking place today are nowhere near where they were in the 1960s and 70s. The John Jay reports clearly document the downward trend. Since 2004, according to annual reports required under the Dallas Charter, there have been nearly 10,000 total abuse allegations against clergy, but 96% of those took place before 2000, and 90% were from before 1990. I asked Smith what would account for this. The pattern of abuse in the church is a temporal pattern, and it reflects the same pattern that we see in crime, in divorce, in sexual behavior and drug drug use, drug experimentation between 1960 and 1980. The number of cases increases each year until the late 70s and then begins to decline fairly precipitously. After the Second World War, America was booming. The expanding economy made it possible for young people to get married and achieve the American dream, home ownership. They started families in huge numbers and sent their children to the expanding network of Catholic schools. So the church was expanding, the Catholic church was growing, and opportunities for the priesthood were more available. And it looked like a very good path uh, for a post-war young man in the 1950s. late 1940s and 1950s. 
The 1960s and 70s were tumultuous decades in the United States. The civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam, and all the tensions these brought, in addition to the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., the advent of the birth control pill, Woodstock, the Manson murders. And things were tumultuous in the church, too. Just days before the Cuban Missile Crisis, bishops from around the world gathered for the Second Vatican Council. They approved dramatic changes to the liturgy and proposed a new relationship for the church with the modern world. Things that had previously seemed settled and fixed suddenly seemed up for debate. Through the 60s and 70s, there was increasing discussion about freedom from historic norms, freedom from traditional things that had not been approved, and experimentation with drugs and with sexuality. A tremendous percentage of priests left the priesthood, but when you look at the reasons why they left the priesthood, they left to marry, or they left to develop intimate relationships with others. So that one cannot expect that those who stayed are different from those who left. They had the same stresses, the same desires. We were allowed to look at archival data of a survey that was done of priests in the 1970s, early 1970s, right at the period that we were discussing. The church didn't like the results, which was that their priests were lonely and thinking about sex. And then by the 1980s, known incidents of abuse in the church began to decline. Okay, so a number of things happened. First of all, within the whole society, there was a contraction or reaction to the excesses of the 70s. Also in the 1980s, survivors of sexual abuse began to organize. It was preliminary, and there were not that many victims known at that time. But it did lead the church to begin to recognize and ask dioceses, individual dioceses, to work on this problem. So according to the John Jay studies, abuse rates in the church seem to correspond with historical changes. But why did abuse happen in the Catholic Church? It's a common question. Are the, what is it about the Catholics? What is it about the Catholics? Well, my answer is always that the abuse of human beings is a human problem and that adolescents are, are attractive to adults. We know that. Look at our advertising in the United States. And they're also vulnerable because they're unsure of themselves and they welcome attention from adults who engage with them. And so it's very difficult for both adults who work with juveniles, adolescents, and for adolescents to keep the relationship healthy. It's very easy for unwanted intimacy to develop. We recognize now that organizations that we can describe as youth-serving organizations very often have problems with sexual abuse by adults who are mentors and guides. And this has happened in sports federations from soccer to hockey to gymnastics to ice skating. And it is very difficult to control. We don't necessarily think of the Catholic Church as a youth-serving organization, like the Boy Scouts. But children are everywhere in the church, from the altar boys at Mass to the students in Catholic schools and religious education programs 
to participants in youth ministry programs and camps. The Boy Scouts, public school districts, and other religious institutions have also recently faced historical cases of child sex abuse. But the abuse in the Catholic Church stands out. A 2019 Pew report found that 9 in 10 U.S. adults have heard at least a little about reports of sexual abuse and misconduct by Catholic clergy. And the first thought that crosses a lot of people's minds is that the cause has to be celibacy. I just don't think the church will be able to change as long as they maintain the celibacy law, which could be changed with the stroke of a papal pen. This is Jason Berry, a Catholic journalist who has written extensively on sex abuse in the church. I just don't see how maintaining this course of idealizing celibacy as the one true way uh, to best serve the church really makes sense anymore. Priestly celibacy is a long-standing tradition in the Catholic Church. However, the discipline of celibacy is not necessarily mandatory. Today, the Church allows married men to be ordained in certain circumstances, like married Anglican ministers who convert to Catholicism. But the question is, would a wholesale revision of priestly celibacy fix the problem of child sex abuse? I mean, what we've watched over the last 40 years is a culture of celibacy riddled with secrecy and lying. And I, I don't know how you change that unless you change the cornerstone of clerical governing, which is that everybody has to be celibate. Barry argues that celibacy prevents a lot more good men from becoming priests. It restricts the number of men who are willing to consider the priesthood, and of course it does not allow women uh, to have any uh, priestly role uh, at all. And I think the church could be rejuvenated uh, if the seminaries uh, began to welcome um, young Catholics, uh, well-educated, who were not um, facing uh, the celibacy requirement. He also argues that the celibacy requirement has led to a dysfunctional priesthood. My view is that if you change the governing dynamics of the church so that people who enter seminaries are not required to lead unmarried lives, an ethos of family dynamics would slowly supplant the idea that uh, chastity on the purest level is the only and best way for uh, people to serve the church in uh, ministerial uh, functions. Smith, in contrast, thinks that the celibacy of priests is simply an easy thing for outsiders to point to. I think that the questions about celibacy resound to me because celibacy is an unusual situation. At least that's how it's perceived, even though studies of sexuality find that approximately a third of the American population does not have sexual relations. So celibacy is not something that only priests are experiencing. But the vow to celibacy and the meaning of celibacy is unusual to many people outside the church. And so it's an easy thing to point to when you're talking about this problem. She points out that if celibacy is the issue, then abuse wouldn't be such a big problem in other parts of society. The problem is not unique to the church. The scout leaders weren't celibate. The doctors and the Hollywood folks and the military folk who abuse others are not celibate.
that's a sexual frustration theory. So you, 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 the priest doesn't have sex, ergo, you're, you're frustrated, therefore you go out and grab a minor. Well, you, there's something wrong with that. Monsignor Stephen Rossetti is a licensed psychologist and a professor at the Catholic University of America. I have worked with many offenders and with those who've been victimized, sadly, and about child abuse. I uh, have worked with priests and religious a lot and lay people as well. I was a consultant to the Pontifical Commission on Child Protection. I was part of the group that drafted the Dallas Charter as well. Monsignor Rossetti doesn't think that the sexual frustration theory holds. If you're sexually frustrated, there are lots of adults who are very willing to have sex with you. And so the question is, why did you choose a minor? See, that's, that's the key. And that's getting back to a very dysfunctional psychological makeup, which was long in place before they went to the seminary, which is one of the reasons why we're starting to uh, beef up our uh, screening of uh, seminarians. There is one aspect of this crisis, however, where Monsignor Rossetti does see a negative impact of celibacy. This I would blame celibacy is a a lack of understanding of how people feel about it when their children are abused. They don't really get the outrage. And and, and the bishops have never communicated the fact that they are outraged. And they should be outraged because the people are outraged. They don't realize that because they don't have their own children. For decades, bishops prioritized support and healing for their priests, even when they were accused of grave crimes. Bishops sent priests for treatment quietly, concealed the reasons that priests were absent, and offered them a fresh start when they returned, all the while ignoring the suffering of the victims. And their silence allowed more abuse to take place. In the case of Rudy Koss, his bishop sent him for treatment in the early 1990s. The parish was told that he was seeking help, but didn't mention any accusations of sexual abuse of minors. While at the treatment center of the servants of the paraclete, Father kept in contact with at least one of his victims. On a trip back to the diocese to celebrate Christmas, he abused that victim again. Look, few, if any, priests or bishops have walked the rug at night, holding that baby with colic, patting that little one on the back, Uh, as I did with my girls when they were very young, as any number of Catholic parents have done. Again, Jason Berry. When you have no experience in the effective bonding of what it takes to build up the young, you can certainly stand as a figure of support and idealism, as many bishops and priests do. But without that direct experience, one really does stand apart. Maybe there's something to this. One of the bitter ironies of clergy abuse is that the men who are called father sometimes showed nothing of a father's protective care. Paternity, I I think, is is another explanatory route that can take on a, a lot of different dimensions to it. Chad Pecknold, a professor of systematic theology at Catholic University, He sees this failure of fatherhood as being at the heart of the abuse crisis. This is the idea that there's been a larger crisis of fatherhood in Western culture generally. Um, This is very well documented in the sociology. President Obama actually took this concern very seriously and had a fatherhood initiative because it's very clear that 
that we do have a fatherhood crisis. And we actually have uh, seen over the last 50 years this become visible in the sacramental order of fathers, too. Catholics call priests father for a reason. The priest is supposed to do for the faithful what a biological or adoptive father does for his children. Protect, provide, educate, serve, and love. Of course, that's not always how fathers act. The sacramental fathers um, can fail in that just like natural fathers can. They can fail to be raised up to the image of the father. And the image of the father in them can get distorted. And they can begin to see themselves in the wrong way as priests. And they can then look at other images of God in the wrong way. Archbishop Gregory, the Archbishop of Washington, told me that fatherhood came up in discussions among the bishops in 2002. I can remember one conversation that I attended, which included the American cardinals and the cardinals of a good number of the dicasteries, and the, the, the mantra that was being raised was, the bishop is the father of his priest. The bishop is the father of his priest, and that is true. But one American bishop, who I will name, uh, one of the cardinals, the American cardinals, Cardinal Frank Stafford, said, yes, the bishop is the father of his priest, but he is also the father of his people. He's the father of those children who have been harmed. And what those men said, the older ones, was something along the lines of, They were like my sons. I loved my priests. Margaret Smith, she's referring to conversations she had with bishops while conducting research. They could not and did not begin to understand the impact on youth. I I don't feel like we fully understood that, and it is certainly one of the most unresolved problems. Not that it will necessarily be resolved but it needs to hang in the air about why the harm to youth was not understood. When it comes to trying to understand the causes of the abuse crisis, there is one issue that stirs more controversy than any other, homosexual priests. In the general population, the vast majority of child sexual abuse is committed by males, and females are three times more likely to be victims of child sexual abuse. But the John Jay report showed that in the Catholic Church, between the years 1950 and 2000, the ratio for victims was reversed. More than 80% were male, at the peak of the crisis during the 1970s, that percentage was closer to 90. In addition, the John Jay report found that 78% of victims were between the ages of 11 and 17. That means that the vast majority of these cases didn't meet the clinical definition of pedophilia. So it's worth making the point that um, pedophilia is a term that applies to exclusive sexual interest in children 
who are in general thought to be prepubescent, that is under 10 or 11. And there, the gender doesn't matter. Like, so it's a gender neutral diagnosis. And that's an actual psychological disorder. Is that correct? That's correct. It, re- it requires that there be uh, repeated persistent attraction to prepubescent children. And it requires that at least more than one event of abuse and no other sexual abuse or intimate contact with any other group. If most of the abuse wasn't related to pedophilia, and most abuse involved adult men preying on adolescent boys, then doesn't that suggest a clear link between homosexuality and clergy abuse? Smith clarified a few things. This is just basically a terminological question. So the the abuse, the activity was homosexual, but anybody who thinks that one homosexual act or several homosexual acts makes someone a homosexual identity is crazy. There's just too much evidence that human beings have sex between men, have sex with both genders. So that's why I say that 78% of the priests who had been treated for more than one abuse of a child had adult relations as well in violation of church policies, heterosexual adult relations. So is that person who had two affairs with married women and two relationships with teenagers, boys. Is that person a homosexual? That person does not have a homosexual identity. Um, That person has some homosexual behavior. Here's why the question of homosexual priests is such a thorny problem. Male-on-male abuse may be committed by men who wouldn't identify as homosexual. And the evidence suggests that a man who identifies as homosexual is no more likely to abuse children than a man who does not. So why does the theory persist? One reason can be found in high-profile cases of homosexual abuse, like that of Theodore McCarrick. McCarrick preyed on young men and boys, including a number of adult seminarians. Another reason is that there is a lot of data, anecdotal and otherwise, showing an influx of homosexual men into the priesthood during the same decades in which abuse was most rampant among Catholic clergy. Estimates of the number of Catholic priests who identify as homosexual vary widely. But there is a widespread agreement that the proportion of homosexual men in the Catholic priesthood is much higher than in the male population at large. And then there are those who seek to normalize homosexuality among clergy, To advance their cause, they make a clear connection between the abuse crisis and homosexual priests. The New York Times ran a piece entitled, It is not a closet, it is a cage. Gay Catholic priests speak out. The author wrote that there are many homosexual priests, that this has in some way contributed to the current crisis, and that the solution is to allow homosexual priests to live their lives, quote, freely, openly, and honestly. But Margaret Smith argues that the homosexual nature of the abuse has more to do with access than sexual orientation. So who was serving in church? Who was the priest around? There weren't altar girls in 1970. Smith calls this opportunity risk. In the 1960s and 70s, parents didn't even think about clergy sex abuse. So they allowed priests much more access to their children than parents would today. 
So the priests were working with these young boys. They made friends. They mentored them. This is the classic pattern of coaches and athletes. The young person begins to feel special, is learning from the adult, is maybe getting treated to special other favors like trips and and training and perhaps money gifts and other forms of generosity that grow out of what I would call a normal relationship. And then the relationship develops into abuse. On the subject of homosexuality and its role in the abuse crisis, Smith has this caution. Within the Catholic Church, there is a very strong desire to have this problem of abuse answered more simply than to account for the ability of human beings to abuse one another. And that is to point to homosexuality. Homosexuality is here, but homosexuality does not account for the sexual abuse of children. In his 2018 letter to the people of God, Pope Francis wrote, to say no to abuse is to say an emphatic no to all forms of clericalism. The Pope's words sparked a debate among Catholics about the meaning of clericalism. I spoke with Dr. Susan Timoney, Associate Professor of Pastoral Practice at Catholic University, about this. Clericalism is when priests themselves feel like they're somehow different and more privileged than the other people of God. And so um, act in a bit of an old boys club is another way that we sometimes talk about those things in, you know, law firms or in um, other churches or golf clubs. <laughs> um, and, and, and when they, they separate themselves um, and give themselves, in a sense, their own rules to play with, their, their own expectations. So those things would all be manifestations of this, um, this misappropriation of, of what it means to be a priest and the way in which you're called to carry out. Your, your ministry. Dr. Timoney views clericalism as a two-way street. On one side, you have this top-down clericalism coming from bishops or priests. On the other side, you have the clericalism of the laity. And I think we do have to say that clericalism is something that, that sometimes people participate in, in, in sometimes giving Father all of those privileges, um, which aren't necessary, certainly to his ministry, um, and not necessarily good for the life of the community as a whole. Sometimes parishioners can see Father as the only one with answers about religious questions, for example. Or they give their pastor expensive gifts or undue deference. Or consider Father Koss. Parents at the time trusted priests enough that they allowed their children to spend the night in the rectory. They hoped Father Koss would be a good influence, a mentor, or a spiritual counselor. We do give an awful lot of power and authority to the priest because of who he is in, in the community. Um, and and I think most priests today would say, I, I, w I want to earn your trust and I want to earn your, your love because first and foremost, I'm called to be a servant. If the priest is a good man, he earns the trust of his people by serving them. But it is precisely the trust that is given to a priest just because he is a priest that makes people vulnerable. A priest is someone you think you can trust and is someone who you would think you would never not be able to trust. So you, in that sense, you can't even say it's misplaced trust to the degree that that's someone who presents themselves as trustworthy. 
I think um, because of this image we have as the priest as our spiritual father even, I think we, we expect a certain intimacy, right? That intimacy that family can bring. It's, it's absolutely the, the fault of the priest himself when he abuses what it means to be ministering um, in Christ's name, um, acting as an altar Christus. Alter Christus means other Christ. Catholics believe that when a priest is celebrating a sacrament, Christ is working through him, such that he is standing in the place of Jesus. He is another Christ. When you believe that your priest is another Christ, it's easy to trust that person and to put him on a pedestal. And for the priest, it can be tempting to abuse that position. I think another element of clericalism is a lack of fraternal correction. Father Paul Scalia is vicar for clergy for the Diocese of Arlington in Virginia. And this is one of the things that has been, I think, um, conspicuously absent in clerical culture, which is is the the willingness to uh, correct and be corrected. Clericalism uh, doesn't do that. Clericalism uh, is, you know, your your kind of stereotypical old boy network where you know we're just looking out for one another and the privileges that come with 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 our with our state in life. So I live in Falls Church, Virginia, which is one of the most, uh, one of the wealthiest areas probably in the world. And I live here free of charge. Now, the reason I do is so that I can be of service to the people here. It's not just because I'm a priest, I get to, I get to, you know, I get free lodging. It's, no, I get free lodging so that that concern is removed from me so that I can be, so that I can concentrate on ministering to Christ's flock. And I think one of the mistakes is to think that that because I'm a priest, I, I get these perks. No, no. It's certain things are, are, are provided for a priest uh, so that he can be free of those concerns and therefore give himself more generously and unreservedly to his people. And I, I think another thing about clericalism is the networking that goes on and the um, looking out for one another and turning a blind eye to one another's faults or, you know, crimes or misdeeds. And it's not something that's that's unique to the priesthood. I think a lot of different groups can can have sort of the old boy network. But of course, once again, it is when it shows up in in the priesthood, it is it is much worse than it would be anywhere else. The question of what caused the sexual abuse crisis continues to be researched and debated. The consensus among those we interviewed seemed to be that it's a convergence of things. Clericalism, combined with the failure of fatherhood and societal upheaval, and lonely priests with poor formation struggling with celibacy in an age of changing attitudes about sex. Yet there's one lingering question that has yet to be answered with any real satisfaction. Why didn't the bishops immediately report priest abusers to the authorities? And then there's this question. Why would bishops reassign known abusers to new parishes? giving them a fresh start and access to new victims. While the John Jay report looked very closely at the abusers, it did not do the same for the bishops who covered for them. This is what Archbishop Wilton Gregory of Washington, D.C. had to say. One of the things that I, I, I have come to, uh, to understand is the difference between being a pastor and being a, uh, a policeman. As a pastor, our uh, first 
responsibility is conversion, redemption, mercy. Uh, and, and we can't lose sight of that. But I think what, what happened in too many cases, not all, but in too many cases, was there was a confusion between a sin and a crime. Uh, I, I think a, a number of bishops who may have reassigned uh, saw the abuse of a child as a sin. And sins can be forgiven, but crimes have to be adjudicated. And there has to be uh, consequences. I don't have the right to take a chance with someone's child. I could not, in conscience, restore uh, a person to ministry whom I knew, uh, who acknowledged, or who had, you know, had had, that I had found a credible uh, proof had, had actually done something. I don't have a right to say, oh, okay, uh, you've acknowledged this. It happened. Uh, I'm going to take a chance with you again. I'm not taking a chance with the priest. I'm taking a chance with the kids in the parish where he could be assigned. His words give me hope, mostly because I know a lot of his brother bishops think the same way. There has been a lot of progress since 2002 in how the church handles sex abuse cases. There really has. Unfortunately, these lessons have been learned too late to help the many victim survivors of clergy abuse. And promises to do better offer little consolation to those who were abused because a bishop reassigned an abuser priest to his or her parish 50 years ago. And the bishops still haven't fully accounted for how they allowed a culture of abuse to fester in the church unchecked for decades. Next week, survivors of clergy sex abuse have long been silenced in the church. Beginning in the 80s, survivors began to support each other and speak out about their experiences. Reform and progress in the church, however imperfect it may be, has benefited from their voices. Join us next week as we listen to and learn from their stories. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Carnal Zoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, and communications manager and writer Sarah Perla. Sound designed by Paul Veitkus. Music courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. And a very special thank you to all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.